It's the 15th of December, 2017. This is the Room Now Week in Review. I'm Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com, here to review the news from the past week on RoomNow.com. Welcome to all of you who are listening in on podcasts, exercising, driving in the car, um, falling asleep even. Uh, you can view these podcasts on the website or on YouTube. You can sign up for the podcasts uh, on both YouTube on and subscribe on YouTube on, on iTunes and also on SoundCloud you can subscribe. At the top of the news, interesting news about tocilizumab and giant cell arteritis. You know, sort of the big news from the last few meetings, um, one of the major advances in therapy. Uh, finally, a drug that's not a steroid that can be given to elderly people that will significantly alter the outcomes of large vessel vasculitis, in this case, giant cell arteritis, certainly a big splash, and it's been approved for use in the United States. It's been looked at in other jurisdictions, and just today it was announced by NICE and the National Health Service in the UK that they were not going to approve tocilizumab for use in giant cell arteritis. Uh, and that's after an extensive analysis basically showing that it doesn't make financial sense, citing cost concerns and not enough qualities um, uh, of a benefit from this sort of therapy, there will not be an approval, at least in the immediate future. We'll see how this plays out in other countries. A new biosimilar has been approved by the FDA. In fact, the FDA has been in sort of active with a number of things again this week. Um, and this is yet another uh, infliximab biosimilar. This one belongs to Pfizer, who, as you do, do know, is currently well, bought out Horizon and is currently marketing Inflectra. They now have this new one called Inixifi, I-X-I-F-I, uh, and it's infliximab-QBTX as the suffix that identifies it. This now becomes the third uh, infliximab or Remicade biosimilar on the market in addition to the originator product, the other two biosimilars being Inflectra and Renflexus. Uh, and then it is now the sixth TNF inhibitor to be approved by the FDA, FDA since April of 2016. The other drugs that have been approved include Arelzi, which is the Etanercept biosimilar, Amgevita and Adalimumab biosimilar, and Siltezo from Beringer Ingelheim, the other Adalimumab biosimilar. Again, a lot of biosimilars now on the market, uh, yet where's all this biosimilar action and all this biosimilar savings? Uh, you know, sort of, we're waiting for this to happen. We're waiting to see how it's going to play out. And then I guess there's going to be some legislative issues. The question is, how are switching go? In my hospital, they changed over to Inflectra and dropped Infliximab without telling, Remicade, without telling me. Uh, and my patients didn't know they were getting uh, Inflectra, the new uh, Remicade biosimilar. And it's been happening for the last uh, year, almost year. Uh, and they're doing that with, at a 10% savings. A gigantic mistake, if you ask me. They should be holding out for a better, a better deal. So, how will switching go? When will it occur? Will it be under your control or not? These are again very challenging issues. Uh, and 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 again, I think the problem is: Will we be comfortable with this? Will we be recommending this? What I've learned from managed care is that they want to see this happen, but they don't want it to be where it's like maybe in this case and maybe not in that case. This only works for managed care when the rule is everybody gets the biosimilar and nobody gets the originator product. When that happens, biosimilars will take hold, there will be savings, um, and everyone's supposed to be happy from the insurer to even the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers, the patients and the doctors. Now, 
I see that that stage being a long ways off. This is going to be an interesting year or two coming up with biosimilars. Uh, um, I tweeted this week a report on the use of uh, FDG PET scanning to uh, diagnose patients who have either fever of unknown origin or inflammation of unknown origin. And uh, it's a 240 patient study. And this got a lot of, uh, of hits, a lot of retweets, a lot of comments. Uh, and the bottom line is that in these 240 patients with either IUO or FUO, the addition of PET scanning was able to increase the diagnostic yield such that 190 of these 240 patients could be diagnosed with uh, this scanning at 79.2%. The most common diagnoses made by PET scanning included Stills disease amongst the FUO patients. Now, I don't know why. There's nothing specific about Stills disease on FUO, but other than to say they don't have cancer. That might have been the diagnostic yield. Um, in IUO patients, large vessel vasculitis, PMR, and IgG4-related disease were the most commonly diagnosed conditions. Each of these is about 15, 20 to 20 percent of the overall diagnoses made. Um, when looking at where the utility was greatest, it was seemed to be in those patients with either FUO or IUO who had or over the age of 50 years old who had a CRP of greater than 3.0 milligrams per deciliter or 30 milligrams per liter and had no evidence of fever. So again, it's an expensive test. Uh, it certainly has a lot of utility in the cancer world and in several other conditions, but maybe it has a role here in these often difficult to diagnose cases. Uh, a small pilot study looked at the utility of, of, of dermatomyositis and polymyositis patients who are refractory to a therapy and maybe treating them with abatacid. So it's a small pilot trial, 20 patients with either PM or DM, and they either get abatacid right out, right in, off the bat initially, or there's a three-month delay uh, in the initiation of abatacid. So when you look at patients at three months' time, 50% of the patients who received abatacid were better by their primary endpoint that was used. Um, and then when everybody got abatacid, and they looked at it at six, six, at six months later, like 8 out of 19, or again, 50% of patients were uh, achieved the primary endpoint, suggesting a response. Again, a small study, it's very limited. The numbers are, are, are hard to um, extrapolate to large populations, but it is encouraging that these 20 patients who are otherwise refractory to steroids and azathioprine and other like therapies did respond with the addition of abatacid. As you know, TNF inhibitors don't work very well here. Uh, the rituximab trials failed in myositis, but that could be a lot of different issues there. And a lot of rheumatologists do use rituximab even though it's not approved and it failed. Here's another option. It'll be interesting to see if the company pursues this as a therapeutic indication. Other abatacept information comes from the ASH meeting. The American Society of Hematology had a report at its meeting where uh, uh, patients were being treated with um, abatacept for the prevention of graft-versus-host disease, GVHD, that would accompany stem cell transplants in patients who are getting either for cancer or blood disorders, uh, where again GVHD can be a real big problem after the fact. Uh, and you know, herefore we have a lot of therapies being used, none of them being very successful. But in this case, when abatacept was used, the GVHD rate went down from 32% to 2%. That's encouraging data. Uh, another interesting report uh, looks at the uh, monitoring of patients with lupus. Uh, and specifically looking at the uh, uh, complement activation product C4D uh, as a marker for activity in lupus. It turns out that all patients who had 
uh, who had lupus and who were quiescent had normal C4D levels. But on the other hand, when as patients got more sicker and sicker, C4D levels correlated very well with disease activity and had a positive predictive value for disease activity of almost 70%. It correlates with high sleet eye levels, um, and especially when as activity goes up, not surprising. Uh, and it also is shown that patients who have a high C4D and high double-strand DNA titers have a five-fold higher risk of nephritis. So again, I, I, it's not something that we commonly use or is it commonly available, but it should be um, another useful way of, of looking at lupus. I'd like to see more studies like this. A, a report came from the Scandinavian literature looking at uh, Finnish patients who are DMARD naive with early RA, 70 plus percent are rheumatoid factor positive, and shows what happens when they get treated either with conventional DMARDs or triple therapy. While there was an advantage for triple therapy over conventional therapy, I think the important thing is that um, almost 75% of early RA patients achieved a DASH 28, DASH 3 remission at three months and six months respectively. So by six months, uh, three quarters of patients are in remission. The DASH 28, 3 is the total joint count, I'm sorry, tender joint count, swollen joint count, and the CRP and drops the patient global. Now, while the DASH 28.3 is not felt to be as useful or as um, sensitive as the DASH 28.4, which is this DASH 28 CRP that includes the CRP and the patient global, uh, it is still a, a cheap and easy way of looking at things and finding these kind of remission rates uh, is really impressive and basically says that if you could get patients with early disease and you treat them aggressively, very high rates of uh, a response will be seen. This is not necessarily surprising, but most of us think we achieve disease, disease remission in a vast majority of our patients. And you know, in the past, the numbers weren't very good. Uh, um, data taken from real-world registries show that initiation of DMARGE or combinations or biologics really only have about a 30, 40, maybe 50% um, um, LDAS rate, and that remission rates are even lower. But yet we seem to think we do better uh, and here's the data that says you can do better, but you, the, the, the limiting factor here is getting patients with early disease. The bottom line is you should promote who it is that you want to see and when you want to see them, and that you'll see more patients. That instead of just waiting for patients to come to you, these early R patients are out there, and if they're going to, they're not going to survive your three-week or three-month wait list. They need to have a fast, easy conduit. A very interesting report uh, was published this week regarding Felty syndrome. Uh, and its similarities with large granular lymphocyte leukemia, LGL leukemia. Um, recent reports have shown that LGL leukemias have an association between some STAT3 STAT and STAT5 mutations that may be integral into the pathogenesis of this disease. Given some of the similarities between Sjogren's and LGL leukemia, uh, these investigators sought to do the same analyses. They looked at 14, only 14, but you know, tell me this last time you saw a Felty's patient, 14 patients with Felty's and did the same analyses. And what they found was that 43% of Felty's patients had this uh, STAT3 mutation. It's found in the SH2 domain of STAT3, which is felt to be a sort of um, a hotspot for mutations. Uh, and it is the same spot and the same mutation that is seen in patients with LGL leukemia, where again, the rate there is 30 to 40%. So the numbers are about the same. The mutation seems to be the same. Uh, again, these patients not only had the same mutation, but they also had the same expansion of CD8 positive T cells and the same um, cytokine profiles as did uh, the LGL leukemia patients. This may be a very important advance in our understanding of Sjogren's syndrome, which is, 
I think, a very hard condition to actually understand the pathogenesis of. Um, other reports looked at Fubuxistat in early RA. Um, the interesting thing about this particular study was that it's an early RA, I'm sorry, it's an early gout study. And who gets early gout? Early gout in this study was defined as patients who had either one or two prior attacks and no more. And they were randomized to receive placebo or Fubuxistat at 40 milligrams. And if they did not achieve an SUA, a uric acid of less than six within 14 days, they were then escalated to 80 milligrams, and many of them actually did that. The interesting thing about this particular study, early gout, where have you seen that? Two, they looked at x-ray and imaging outcomes, kind of unusual, um, and, and they, while they showed that there was clinical benefit, patients obviously on Fabuxistat had a significant lowering of their serum uric acid levels, and they looked at flare rates, and patients on Fabuxistat had lower flare rates between six months and two years, in the first six months, everybody had flare rates. It was a mess. Um, but they looked at imaging outcomes. And surprisingly, looking at plain x-rays, there was no reduction in erosions, even though the disease was better controlled with Fubuxistat. However, when they looked at the RAMRIS scoring system of MRIs, they, show, they saw a reduction in synovitis in patients who are on Fubuxistat. Again, a very interesting phenomenon. Some of the problems here. One, it's this kind of study's never been done. Two, Dropout rates were high, around 40% or more. And a lot of that has to do with men and men with gout, and they're just unreliable and they don't come back and they're nomadic. It's real, they're really hard to do these kind of studies. Um, it may be that um, that you know x-ray changes are not in gout are not like that seen in RA because the disease can be episodic and it may take longer to establish this kind of radiographic change. But it, so while it's encouraging that we saw a synovitis change. Um, maybe a little discouraging that there's not yet um, a radiographic change. I'd like to know what would happen if the um, the therapeutic intervention was instead of fluboxetine, another um, xanthine oxidase inhibitor, allopurinol, uh, or what would happen when you use peglodicase? Will that actually retard the erosions? We need to see these kind of studies going forward. The big news from the FDA this week was the approval of mepolizumab. This is also called Nucala. Um, this drug is actually approved for use and has been approved, I think, since 2015 for use in severe asthma with a heavy eosinophilic component. Uh, it is now approved largely on the basis of the New England Journal report that appeared earlier this year that showed that patients who have uh, Church-Strauss disease or EGPA who are given mepolizumab every four weeks have a significant um, uh, higher rate of, of remission. I include a, B, a BVAS of zero, you know, little or no steroids, et cetera. Uh, and, not while, and while half the patients didn't respond to this therapy, the response rates were, were about 50% for those that were on mepolizumab and basically, you know, zero to 5% for those that were on placebo. So this is a nice addition for a very difficult to treat disease. Lastly, offspring of women uh, um, who have rheumatoid arthritis, what happens to their kids in the long run, not after birth, but what about their development and do they develop other diseases? This is actually a really big issue with the FDA and people who want to study outcomes uh, in pregnancy, especially with regard to chronic disease and the use of drugs. So I've always advocated and the my review of the literature says it's not the drugs that cause the problems, it's disease activity in the mother that causes the problems, which is why you need to treat RA or lupus aggressively during pregnancy so that they, they can have a really uh, the best possible outcome for the mother and the child. So the data that they've looked at here is very large numbers. Uh, and this is, I think this is a, a Scandinavian study with very large numbers. And basically what they showed is that uh, women who have RA 
their offspring is that have a higher risk of developing three things, chronic diseases. Number one is um, thyroid disease in children with a odds ratio of 2.2, I think. Um, childhood epilepsy, increased odds ratio of 1.6. And rheumatoid arthritis, the increased odds of developing rheumatoid arthritis in the offspring is 2.9, nearly a threefold increase in the odd. This is a little bit shocking, if you ask me. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if this could be repeated in other locales. But this is important data. This, again, speaks to the fact that we need to do better at controlling disease activity to have better outcomes for the mother and the child. What they didn't do in the study is they did not look at the drugs that were used in the mothers. Uh, again, this is mostly in an era, in eras where the biologics weren't available uh, and the traditional therapies might have been. So, uh, again, more study is needed in this area. That's it for this week at Room Now uh, and the Week in Review. Go to the website and you can look up these links and learn more about what's happening in rheumatology. We'll see you next week.